Section 17 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. C. Segretti Cover-Up Segretti was first contacted by the FBI shortly after the Watergate break-in, when his name and phone number showed up on Howard Hunt's telephone records. Segretti immediately called Dwight Chapin at the White House to request his assistance in getting legal counsel. Chapin, after consulting with Gordon Strachan at the White House, told Segretti to return to Washington, D.C. immediately. Meanwhile, Strachan called John Dean and explained that the FBI had called a friend of his named Donald Segretti and wanted to interview him in connection with the break-in at the DNC. Strachan requested that Dean meet with Segretti. A meeting was arranged for the morning of Saturday, June 24, 1972, amongst Segretti, Strachan, and Dean in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel. Following a short discussion of Segretti's general activities, Dean told Segretti to come to Dean's office in the White House the following day for more detailed discussion. Segretti went to the Executive Office building the next day and outlined in detail to Dean his relationship with E. Howard Hunt. Dean told Segretti not to worry about the upcoming interview since the FBI had picked his name up on Hunt's phone records. In addition, Dean instructed Segretti not to divulge the names of Chapin, Strachan, or Kalmbach to the FBI unless the FBI felt it was absolutely necessary to have the names. Segretti left Washington and returned to California where he was interviewed by FBI agents. The interview focused on Segretti's contacts with E. Howard Hunt, and he was not forced to divulge any of the names about which he had been concerned. Segretti telephoned to John Dean after the interview to tell him that he had not been forced to reveal any of the sensitive names. In August 1972, Segretti was notified that he was being subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury investigating the Watergate break-in in Washington. Because of his concern about testifying before the grand jury, Segretti tried to contact his friends at the White House as well as local legal counsel. Segretti finally reached Dwight Chapin at the Republican convention. Chapin called Dean, who was also at the convention, to explain that Segretti was quite concerned about being called before the federal grand jury. Dean said that he would be happy to meet with Segretti in Florida since it was impossible for him to go to Washington at that time. After Dean talked to Chapin, he called Assistant Attorney General Henry Peterson at the Department of Justice and explained the sensitive problem that was confronting Segretti. Dean said he told Peterson that Segretti had no involvement in the Watergate incident, but that he met with Hunt in connection with some campaign activities that he had been performing for the White House. Dean testified he also explained to Peterson that Segretti was being paid by Kalmbach and that he had been recruited by Chapin and Strachan. Dean said he stressed that if these facts were revealed, they would be quite embarrassing and would cause political problems during the last weeks of the election. According to Dean, Peterson replied that he understood the problem and would see what he could do. Dean later spoke to Peterson again, and Dean testified that Peterson explained that he did not believe it would be necessary for the prosecutors to get into the specific areas of concern to Dean when Segretti appeared. Peterson recalls that the question of going into the dirty tricks of Segretti was also raised by Earl Silbert, who said that there did not appear to be a violation of the Corrupt Practices Act. The question was raised again by Charles Bowles, head of the accounting and fraud section of the FBI, who asked Peterson if there was any violation of federal election law by Segretti. Peterson replied that he knew of none. Peterson directed Silbert not to probe the relationships between Segretti and Kalmbach, Chapin, and Strachan because he didn't want him getting into the relationships between the president and his lawyer, 
or the fact that the president's lawyer might be involved in somewhat, I thought, illegitimate campaign activities on behalf of the president. Segretti flew to Florida a few days prior to his appearance before the grand jury. He met with John Dean briefly on the Saturday morning preceding the opening of the Republican National Convention. Dean explained to Segretti that he did not believe the government was particularly interested in pursuing the names of Strzok and Chapin and Kalmbach in connection with Segretti's activities, and that he doubted that Segretti would be asked any questions in these areas. Dean advised Segretti, however, that if he were asked any questions about his dirty tricks activities, he should answer every question truthfully, and if pressed, Dean advised Segretti to lay out the whole ball of wax. Segretti recalled that Dean was most concerned about Kalmbach's name being brought up but the dean mentioned that he might be able to put certain parameters in the grand jury examination through Henry Peterson. Segretti then traveled to Washington for his grand jury appearance. Prior to testifying, Segretti was interviewed by Earl Silbert and Don Campbell in the U.S. Attorney's Office. During the interview, he recalled that he was asked if he were getting paid by a Mr. K. However, once Segretti went before the grand jury, Segretti testified that Silbert did not get into that area of questioning. Segretti testified that a woman juror finally asked him who was paying him, and that he then testified that he was paid by Kalmbach and he was hired by Chapin and Strachan. Earl Silbert has filed an affidavit with the committee denying that the original Watergate prosecutors limited their questioning of Segretti in order to conceal the involvement of Chapin, Strachan, and Kalmbach. Silbert said that since Segretti's last payment was in March 1972, prior to the effective date of the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, it foreclosed the possibility of a violation of this act. Silbert also denied that he or Donald Campbell ever referred to Herbert Kalmbach as Mr. K. In his affidavit, Silbert explained more fully his questioning of Segretti. Because none of his non-Watergate activity appeared to involve criminal violations, and because the grand jury was investigating only Watergate, we did not examine Mr. Segretti at length about his political spying activities before the grand jury. However, we immediately requested the FBI to interview Messrs. Chapin and Strachan of the White House staff, who Mr. Segretti had informed us had recruited him, and Mr. Kalmbach in California. The reports of these interviews were sent to the Special Election Law Unit in the Department of Justice. The possible inference drawn by some that we did not explore Mr. Segretti's spying activities before the grand jury because we wanted to conceal any involvement of Messrs. Kalmbach, Chapin, and Strachan is nonsense. We did not because it did not relate to the break-in and the bugging. Following his grand jury testimony, Segretti called John Dean to explain that the names of Chapin, Strachan, and Kalmbach had been revealed by questioning from one of the grand jurors. Following his grand jury appearance, the FBI scheduled interviews with Chapin, Strachan, and Kalmbach. Dean had responsibility for preparing both Chapin and Strachan for their FBI interviews. Dean recalled that Strachan stated on one occasion in the presence of Richard Moore and Dean that he would perjure himself to prevent Haldeman from becoming involved in the matter. Strachan testified that the discussion with Moore and Dean concerned a reply to a press story in which Strachan offered to take responsibility for approving the hiring of Donald Segretti instead of Mr. Haldeman. After his grand jury appearance, Segretti's next contact concerning his activities in the re-election campaign was in the middle of September when he was contacted by Carl Bernstein and later by Robert Myers of the Washington Post, who called to ask about his activities. After receiving these calls, Segretti contacted Larry Young again for legal advice and also telephoned to Dwight Chapin. Both Chapin and Dean advised Segretti to keep a low profile, and Dean asked Segretti to call and check in periodically. On October 10, 1972, 
the Washington Post published the first allegations that Donald Segretti had organized a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage conducted on behalf of President Nixon's re-election and directed by officials at the White House and the Committee for the Re-election of the President. Segretti recalls being called by John Dean prior to the publication of the article, when Dean told Segretti of the forthcoming article. Dean said he was in Florida and that he was going to fly to Washington to meet Segretti as soon as possible to discuss the allegations in the article. Segretti immediately flew to Washington, D.C. and called Fred Fielding, Dean's assistant, after checking in at a local motel near the airport. Segretti was subsequently directed by Dean or Fielding to leave the motel, since he was registered under his real name, and to take a taxi to within a block of the executive office building where Fielding met him to take him into the executive office building. Segretti testified that he did not sign in on the entrance logs to the executive office building, since Fielding explained to the guard that this was the individual who lost his wallet, or something similar. Segretti met with Fielding and Dean for about an hour, and they discussed the allegations contained in the Washington Post article. Dean read the article to Segretti line by line, and they discussed the truth or falsity of each of the charges. At the end of the meeting, there was a brief discussion about Segretti writing a statement to be released publicly on the following day. After the meeting, Segretti said that Dean and Fielding drove him to a motel near Crystal City, where he registered under an assumed name. Segretti wrote out a brief statement the following morning for possible release by the White House. Segretti testified that Fielding came by his motel room at about 10 a.m. with a statement prepared by people in the White House that denied most of the allegations in the Post. Segretti said he read over Fielding's statement and made some corrections on it, since Fielding indicated they were under some time pressure to get the statement out. Later on that same day, Segretti was contacted again by Dean, who explained that the medium people in the White House had decided that the story would die by itself and that there should be no further statement made by the White House at that time. Segretti's proposed press statement was discussed in a meeting at Dwight Chapin's office that day, attended by Ron Ziegler, John Ehrlichman, Dwight Chapin, John Dean, Gordon Strachan, and later by Fielding after he had received a draft copy of Segretti's proposed field statement. At that meeting, it was decided that Segretti should not issue his statement. Following the meeting, Dean testified that Ehrlichman directed him to advise Segretti to go incognito and hide from the press to avoid further stories until after the election. When Dean talked to Segretti later that afternoon, Dean mentioned how nice the Greek islands were at that time of year. There was also some discussion about how Segretti should travel back to the West Coast. Segretti recalled that Dean told him that it would be a great idea to take a train across the country. Segretti, following Dean's suggestion, then took trains from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, from Philadelphia to Chicago, from Chicago to Houston, and from Houston to Nevada. During his travels, Segretti would periodically check in with Dean to learn the latest developments and revelations emerging from the White House and the campaign. Sometime during this same period, Segretti also called Doug Kelly and Robert Benz, his two major operatives in Florida, to inform them of his real identity so they would be prepared for the coming publicity. Following the election, Dean was asked by Haldeman and Ehrlichman to meet with Segretti to determine the extent of the involvement that Chapin and Strachan had with him. Soon thereafter, Dean met with Segretti in Palm Springs, California at the El Dorado Hotel, where Segretti had been staying for the week prior to the election. Dean taped his interview with Segretti, with the understanding that the material was privileged and would never be released. Segretti later claimed that the tape should not be disclosed because it was privileged by the attorney-client relationship. However, the committee directed Segretti to answer questions concerning his conversation with John Dean 
since the facts did not support a bona fide attorney-client privilege. Dean testified that his visit to Palm Springs was interrupted by a request on November 11th from Todd Hullen that Dean go to Florida to meet with Ehrlichman and Haldeman, who were there with the president, to report on Dean's interview with Segretti. Dean flew to Florida immediately and met with Haldeman and Ehrlichman on about November 12th. At that meeting, Dean played the tape of the interview that he had with Segretti. While Dean was discussing the matter with Ehrlichman and Haldeman, Dean recalled that President Nixon requested that Haldeman meet with him in his office. Dean recalled that Haldeman sent a message back to the president that he was meeting with John Dean and that he would be over shortly to report to the president on the results of his meeting. On about November 15, 1972, Dean testified that he met with Haldeman and Ehrlichman at Camp David. During the first part of the meeting, the subject of Chapin remaining at the White House arose. Dean said he learned at that time that the president had decided that Chapin would have to leave the White House staff as a result of the information that had been given to Haldeman and Ehrlichman in Florida. Other officials in the White House, including Richard Moore, felt that the president should merely issue a letter of censure to Chapin and leave the matter alone. Dean raised this suggestion with Haldeman and Ehrlichman, but Ehrlichman felt it was not possible to raise the matter again with the president. Dean then was given the task of telling Chapin that he had to leave the White House. Meanwhile, Dean was directed by Ehrlichman to get a job for Segretti, and so he relayed this request to Herb Kambach. Kambach apparently found a job for Segretti, which paid about $30,000 a year at the Holiday Inn in Montego Bay, Jamaica, in a legal public relations capacity. Segretti said he was quite interested by the prospect of this high-paying job, but testified that since his mother was sick and since he received a subpoena from the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Administrative Practices and Procedures at about the same time, he decided not to take the job. Dean also discovered that the owner of the Holiday Inn where Segretti was going to work was a friend of President Nixon, and so Dean said he instructed Segretti not to take the job. At about this time, Dean spoke with Paul O'Brien, counsel for CRP, about possible West Coast counsel for Segretti. O'Brien recommended Gordon Hampton, an old friend of his from Los Angeles. Segretti met with Hampton and wrote out in longhand all the details of his activities during the previous year. Hampton subsequently gave this statement, as well as Segretti's phone bills, address cards, and account book to Paul O'Brien to transmit to John Dean on December 8, 1972. Hampton said he sent this material to Dean even though Dean had never requested it, because he felt that Dean was acting as co-counsel on the case. These materials were subsequently turned over to the select committee by John Dean pursuant to his subpoena Ducas Tecum. After Segretti was subpoenaed by the Senate Subcommittee on Administrative Practices and Procedures, he retained John Pollock, a Los Angeles trial attorney. Pollock said that Hampton told him that Pollock's name had been submitted to or screened by or approved by the White House. During the period that Hampton and Pollock represented Segretti, O'Brien kept in touch with them and reported all of their activities to John Dean. There is no evidence that Hampton or Pollock received any directions from third parties on how to represent their client, Donald Segretti. D. White House Press Response On October 10, 1972, the Washington Post published the first allegation that the Watergate bugging incident stemmed from a massive campaign of political spying and sabotage conducted on behalf of President Nixon's re-election and directed by officials at the White House and the Committee for the Re-election of the President. In addition, the Post alleged that Donald Segretti traveled around the country recruiting agents to sabotage opposing campaigns and to gather intelligence information on opponents. 
These revelations by the Washington Post initiated a concerted and organized effort by the White House and the Committee to Re-elect the President to deceive, mislead, and misinform both the public and the press as to the activities of Donald Segretti and his agents. First, as described above, Segretti was immediately called back to Washington and then instructed to lay low until after the election in November. In the daily press briefing at the White House on October 10th, following the publication of the story about Segretti in the Washington Post, White House Press Secretary Ron Ziegler refused to provide any details or further information at all to press inquiries concerning the Segretti matter and other information revealed by the Washington Post. On October 13, 1972, the White House press office was contacted by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, who said that they would report on Sunday that Dwight Chapin was a White House contact over Donald Segretti, that Segretti was paid a $20,000 annual salary from a trust account in a lawyer's name, a high-placed friend of the president, that Segretti received some assignments from E. Howard Hunt, and that Segretti reported frequently to Chapin on the progress of the sabotage activities. Despite the fact that Segretti had flown to Washington, D.C. on October 10th to explain exactly what he had done, and despite the knowledge of Strachan and Chapin about the details of Segretti's hiring, the White House issued the following statement. Statement by Dwight Chapin As the Washington Post reporter has described it, the story is based entirely on hearsay and is fundamentally inaccurate. For example, I do not know, have never met, seen, or talked to E. Howard Hunt. I have known Donald Segretti since college days, but I did not meet with him in Florida as the story suggests, and I certainly have never discussed with him any phase of the grand jury proceedings in the Watergate case. Beyond that, I don't propose to have any further comment. After the Post published the story on October 15, 1972, a meeting was held in the Roosevelt Room of the White House among Ehrlichman, Ziegler, Buchanan, Richard Moore, Dwight Chapin, and John Dean. The purpose of this meeting was to prepare Ziegler for his press briefing the following day with reference to the Segretti stories in the paper. A secretary was present during the meeting and recorded much of the hypothetical questioning and answering of Mr. Ziegler by those present. The instructions given to Ziegler on October 15, 1972, and throughout the rest of the presidential campaign were designed to withhold information from the public about Segretti's activities, so that the president's chances for re-election would not be affected. Ziegler's basic response was, Gentlemen, I have nothing to add to what Chapin has already said on the subject. Judging from what Chapin had already said on the subject, Ziegler's response to such press inquiries was hardly forthcoming. Notes from the meeting indicate that it was known October 15th that Herbert Kalmbach paid Segretti for his expenses and salary during his employment. And yet, when the White House was informed by the Washington Post on October 15, 1972, that a story stating that Kalmbach had authorized payments to Donald Segretti would appear the following day, the White House had no comment. At the 8.15 a.m. meeting in the White House on Monday, October 16, 1972, it was decided that Ron Ziegler, RNC Chairman Robert Dole, and Clark McGregor should all make statements attacking the Post stories of the previous days. Ziegler characterized the charges in the Washington Post as malicious, and stated that he would neither discuss nor deny the charges because to do so would dignify them. During the day, McGregor was advised that both Ziegler and Dole had made strong statements, and so he thought there was no longer a need for him to make a statement. However, McGregor testified that John Ehrlichman called him and asked him to read a statement that had been prepared. McGregor testified that he did not know the author of the statement, and that he opposed merely reading the statement to the press and then refusing to answer any questions. 
McGregor also testified that he had no knowledge that the CRP or the White House were supporting any type of political espionage. However, McGregor had talked to Dwight Chapin prior to his press conference on October 16th and had been informed that Segretti had been hired by Chapin to perform pranks during the campaign. Nevertheless, McGregor read the prepared statement on the afternoon of October 16, 1972, which said, in part, Using innuendo, third-person hearsay, unsubstantiated charges, anonymous sources, huge scare headlines, the Post has maliciously sought to give the appearance of a direct connection between the White House and the Watergate, a charge which the Post knows, and half a dozen investigations have found, to be false. The hallmark of the Post's campaign is hypocrisy, and its celebrated double standard is today visible for all to see. It is said that this is a dirty campaign, but all the dirt is being thrown by only one side. The mudslinging, the name-calling, the unsubstantiated charges, the innuendos, the guilt by association, the character assassination, the second-hand hearsay, are all tactics exclusively employed by the McGovernites and their apologists. President Nixon will remain on the high road, discussing issues of real concern to the American people in a fair, forthright, and hard-hitting manner. On October 25, 1972, the Washington Post reported that H.R. Haldeman was one of five individuals who had authority to approve payments from a secret cash fund during the 1972 campaign. While this article did not relate specifically to Segretti, it was published in the same time frame as the earlier Segretti articles. Again, the White House issued only a terse statement to the Post which said, Your inquiry is based on misinformation because the reference to Bob Haldeman is untrue. Neither Haldeman nor General L. Warren, Deputy White House Press Secretary, would elaborate any further on the story. Once again, Ron Ziegler labeled the story untrue and accused the Washington Post of shabby journalism and a blatant effort at character assassination. Clark McGregor joined Ron Ziegler in issuing a flat, official denial of the Washington Post story. Subsequent testimony before this committee revealed that Haldeman authorized the hiring of Segretti and authorized payments from the cash fund kept by Herbert W. Kambach. On November 1st, Dwight Chapin drafted a proposed statement to be released by the White House which briefly related some details of the hiring of Segretti. Four days later, Chapin drafted a memorandum for John Dean which was marked Eyes Only. This memo was entitled Chronology of Activity and outlined for Dean some of the facts concerning Segretti's hiring by Chapin and Strachan. The purpose of the operation, according to Chapin, was that we were after information as to the schedules of candidates, people who could infiltrate headquarters, could ask embarrassing questions, and could organize counter-demonstrations to those we expected our opposition to come forth with during the campaign. The memo also noted that in January or February 1972, after Gordon Liddy reported to Gordon Strachan that there was an unidentified agent in the field who was causing some problems for the CRP, Strachan checked two people, blank and blank, and then Don was advised to report to Liddy. The two individuals, whose names were left blank, were Haldeman and Mitchell. Following the election, Dean testified that Haldeman asked him to write a report for public release that would include full disclosure of the Segretti matter. Taking the information provided by Chapin, Segretti, and others, Dean drafted a series of carefully worded affidavits for each individual whose name had been mentioned by the press in relation to political sabotage and espionage activities. Based on the affidavits, Dean, with the help of Richard Moore, wrote a summary draft report and attached the affidavits. This report was forwarded to Haldeman on December 5, 1972. Haldeman gave the report to Ehrlichman, who made some penciled changes, and then forwarded it to Ron Ziegler. 
On December 13th, a meeting was held in Ziegler's office among Ziegler, Haldeman, Dean, and Moore to discuss whether or not to release the information. Richard Moore, John Dean, and Dwight Chapin all testified that Chapin had been in favor from the start of releasing a brief statement whereby Chapin would accept responsibility for the hiring of Segretti and would apologize for having done so. However, at the meeting on December 13th, Dean's proposed releases were discussed, and in the words of Richard Moore, John Dean's memos just raised more questions than they asked. It was not a complete statement, it wouldn't have been a proper one to put out, and I think I probably said, it wasn't justified and it was just shelved. Dean recalled that nothing was resolved at the meeting, and that it was the consensus of the group that the White House should continue to do nothing on the general theory that no one would be arrested for what they didn't say. End of section 17